This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It was a shortened trading week coming off the July 4th holiday, and yet one where we were still trying to get to the bottom of the most recent round of cyber attacks. More on that in a moment. Also trying to unpack a massive infrastructure spending proposal in the U.S., former U.S. Transportation Secretary Rodney Slater weighs in on how we need to think about it. We're also being pretty thoughtful about the reality of what post-pandemic work is like, right, Tim? Especially if you cannot work from home, it's going to be different. We'll do that, though, with the chief people officer over at Waste Management. Plus, the Bitcoin dilemma. What really is the future of cryptocurrency and the blockchain? All of that to come, but we begin with the latest targets of international cyber criminals. And Tim, we know there are lots of moving parts and questions regarding cyber attacks and Russian involvement and Russian government awareness. Lots of questions, yet one thing we know for certain, they're happening more frequently and getting more sophisticated. Carol and I spoke with Bloomberg News cybersecurity reporter William Turton to help break them all down. We reported that hackers that are aligned with the Russian state, Russian intelligence service, breached the Republican National Committee. Now, we don't know what they did once they were inside or what data they took. We're still working to find out more about that. But the really interesting thing is it happened on this backdrop of a massive ransomware campaign. So there's, there's two things happening here. There's an espionage campaign happening, and there's a ransomware campaign happening. And they're both originating from Russia. So Russian criminals, this criminal hacker group called Revol, is conducting a ransomware campaign in a very wide scale, a scale that we haven't really seen before, where they sort of automated their attack. They hit one company that makes technology for a lot of companies in order to encrypt nearly 800 to 1,500 businesses, is the estimate right now. So at the same time, the Russian intelligence services use the chaos created by that attack to then go and breach the RNC. So where's the Russian government in all of this, despite President Biden saying to President Putin, like, knock it off? Yeah. So, you know, Russian state hackers hacking the RNC is just sort of your normal espionage, actually. I mean, we do the same thing. That's standard. That's not that surprising. It's certainly interesting and newsworthy, but the combination of the two is what's really raising people's eyebrows here. Because the question for a long time has been, to, to what degree are the criminals and the intelligence hackers in Russia aligned? And how much are they collaborating? And, and is it a tacit approval from the Russian state or are they getting more instructions? And that's just something that we don't know right now, but that's kind of one of the questions that's being raised by these things happening at the same time. But you also say, just to follow, is that we, the U.S. government and other governments are doing it on other governments too. Are we somehow doing something on a similar level? Obviously, maybe not the ransomware side being part of it. Well, espionage and ransomware are two very different things. Espionage has gone on forever and will go on forever. But it's, it's really the backdrop of the espionage happening at the same time of this global ransomware, right? Because the cybersecurity professionals, they're worn out. I mean, ever since SolarWinds, there's been a one huge hack after another. So people are just really lacking the resources to respond. And, and when you have a big systemic ransomware event like this, 
I mean, people really have their eye off the ball and you're not gonna be mm -hmm. looking for something like espionage. What is the weak link here? Because these security systems, they seem to be this reoccurring theme, right? They're only as strong as the weakest link. An employee clicks a bad link, gives some information, enters his or her password, and boom, they're in. What's the weak link here? Well, it's, it's hard to know. I think the problem is extremely complex. Um, and there's sort of new threats that are evolving all the time. And it's like the pace of innovation and, and how we're kind of integrating ourselves even deeper into computers and networks uh, isn't really keeping up with security. And I mean, the internet fundamentally was not built with security in mind. No one really anticipated that these things would ever happen. So, I. You know, I just don't know. There, there's so many weak links. But William, they are getting more sophisticated. I mean, you think about how they got into the global software supply chain. Like when you start to do this, yeah. that makes it that you can kind of do one thing but potentially impact so much more. Right. So in December, we learned about Russian intelligence hackers doing this with SolarWinds. And it was amazing. I mean, it was the sort of tradecraft that you would expect from some of the best hackers in the world, right? right. But now we're seeing criminal groups do this. That's what's really interesting. They're, they're kind of upping their tradecraft and they're making it so they don't just hit one company, they hit hundreds or thousands of companies all at once. You know, one thing that's interesting, Tim and I, I think on air on our daily show, we are constantly talking with cybersecurity firms who are saying we're protecting everything. And yet it seems like the criminals or the bad guys or the folks who are involved in ransomware are always a couple steps ahead. Is it always going to be like that? Well, you ha there are, I mean, think about it, there are some companies that haven't been hit by ransomware, right? And there are companies mm -hmm. that are doing things right. I think, you know, everyone will agree financial institutions, for example, are sort of very far ahead on cybersecurity where so other far. industries are not. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, you know, it's really, uh, it's, it's, there's just so much that we don't hear about because most of these hacks go unreported. Um, you know, you can have great security tools, you can buy all the products, but if you don't have a team that implements them correctly, then it's not going to work. So what's a government to do? What's a, what's a business to do? I mean, it sounds like this is something that, that has to have the support of uh, private-public partnerships, right, in order to actually prevent it from, from happening again. And we saw this in the wake of, I think it was the JBS uh, and Colonial Pipeline attacks, right, where these companies paid these large millions of dollars in, in, in Bitcoin, and it seems to provide some sort of incentive for uh, bad actors to go out and continue to do this because the, the will is there for these companies to get their systems back online and they'll pay to do it. Yeah, I mean, the option of you're like a colonial pipeline, it makes sense to pay. And a lot of these companies also have cyber insurance. So, you know, what's the point of paying the premium if you don't invoke your cyber insurance to pay the ransom? That was Bloomberg News cybersecurity reporter William Turton. Tim, every time we talk with him, I just realize there's still so much we don't know and folks get ready for even more of this to go on. Well, like you said, and it's just it, it seems like the, the cyber criminals are one step ahead of everyone else right now. Yeah. And it's worrisome. So far, yeah. the financial industry has been really good, yeah. as he mentioned, Fingers you know, crossed, right? right? But uh, just makes me a little nervous. All right. Coming up, securing our future infrastructure security and needs. We check in with a former U.S. Transportation Secretary. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
So a bipartisan group of House lawmakers have publicly endorsed President Joe Biden's $579 billion infrastructure deal with a number of Republican and Democratic senators. We're talking about the hard infrastructure part of his deal. And that's giving the compromise fresh momentum at the start of a crucial month for the administration's agenda. The possibility of infrastructure spending has fascinated investors for years. Joining us with some thoughts this week, former U.S. Transportation Secretary Rodney Slater. He served under President Bill Clinton, and before that, he was administrator of the Federal Highway Administration. I feel like we've been talking about an infrastructure spend forever. Today, Rodney is a partner at the international well-known law firm and lobbyist Squire Patton Boggs, based in Washington, D.C. Clearly, uh, President Biden had a much larger bill, and I think ultimately even this measure will be beyond um, that amount, because uh, I think when you consider uh, current spending levels with new spending levels, it's going to be in excess of uh, $1 trillion. Uh, but um, uh, we've got significant transportation needs. I think this is a very, very important step. And I think just as is the case with all uh, transportation measures, you have to have bills that are continuously reauthorized. Uh, and it's just uh, unfortunate that um, uh, in the last you know decade or so, uh, we just have not uh, been as um, uh, forthright Uh, in spending the kinds of uh, dollars we have to spend to ensure that our system remains in good shape and that we're also investing in things of the future like um, uh, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, uh, high-speed trains, maglev uh, trains, uh, those sorts of things. So I'm excited about the bill. Uh, Traditional infrastructure primarily, though, with some significant investment in broadband. Uh, And uh, I think it's a very important uh, first step. Well, Secretary Slater, and that's something I wanted to get into about, you know, there's different types of infrastructure out there. You were Transportation Secretary under President Bill Clinton. Before that, you were Administrator of the Federal Highway Administration. I mean, you have (laughs) seen our infrastructure for many years, the comings and goings. Are we thinking about infrastructure in a bit of an outmoded way, an old model? Should we be thinking about ways to actually cut back on the use of, of roads and highways rather than just building it back? And I'm thinking about things like efficient congestion pricing for cars and trucks mm-hmm. or efficient mm-hmm. pavement and bridgeware pricing for trucks because trucks really kill our roads and highways. You know, should we have them be paying more that that will hopefully ultimately bring about uh, better design, if you will, when it comes to trucks? Well, uh, you know, first of all, let me just, I want to step in in support of, say, trucks and trains, because that's really what keeps our uh, economy moving. Uh, We are the most mobile society in the world, and we move significant amounts of uh, freight and um, all the kinds of products that we take for granted when we go to a grocery store, when we go to a department store, that sort of thing. And many of those goods are moved by trucks, many moved by trains. And even during the pandemic, uh, these workers were on the front lines, again, keeping our economy going. But you're right, transportation, I've always said, is about more than concrete, asphalt, and steel. We have to look at new means of investing in transportation. We have to, uh, frankly, wean ourselves from a dependence on Uh, fossil fuels and look at uh, new renewed uh, energy sources. Uh, I think um, the president has challenged us uh, in that regard, even with his campaign theme of building back better, not just building back, but building back better and shoring up our infrastructure so as to withstand some of the natural disasters that we're facing, especially on the coast. So we've got a lot of work to do. I think we've got the professionals to get that work done. 
Right. Uh, the American people want it done, and uh, it's key to our pursuit of happiness. So I think that there is much about the new that has to be done, but also we have to maintain the system that we have currently. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the coast, too, and I do wonder about that with climate change. We talk about Florida mm-hmm. a lot here on Bloomberg. It's yeah. caught the attention of investors. You know, should we continue to build back and shore up if we're not going to really equally do something about climate change? Because it's just a case of rebuilding the castle only to see the shoreline take it down again. Yeah. Well, you know, the the president has been very clear about that. Uh, and I think he's really hit on three words that I believe will ultimately define uh, the effort that he's proposed and the effort that uh, the Congress will actually pass. Uh, he's talked about resilience. He's talked about sustainability and equity. And all of those uh, issues go to the transportation system of the future, being more resilient, where it's shored up, where it's um, building back better, being sustainable, meaning uh, a system that can withstand the challenges of freight, withstand the challenges of natural disasters, those sorts of things, and then more equitable, ensuring that everyone is included, that no one is left behind. And so I'm excited about uh, what we can anticipate. I think that we've seen the system really... um, tested in this 4th of July holiday weekend where we've enjoyed um, the opportunity as Americans to see America come back, if you will, and and sort of get back to a period of, uh, of normalcy, especially uh, hopefully as we've sort of put COVID in our rearview mirror. But again, that has been the number one objective of the president, freeing us from that and then dealing with our economic pandemic, our economic challenges, uh, and then investing in the future. And I, I just feel good about where we are, but we've got much more to do as the Congress returns from the holiday and sort of nears the August recess and then, frankly, the end of the fiscal year, uh, the end of September. So uh, right. a lot to do, but I think we're uh, on the right track, to be sure. I think here again, we've seen some good signs. I mean, clearly, uh, this effort is not only an effort that's being pushed by the president, but you've got a bipartisan group of senators uh, who've responded uh, quite um, admirably as well. And then more recently, uh, the House Problem Solvers Caucus uh, has stepped forward. That's roughly six members of uh, uh, 60 members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats. So I think that's uh, that's a good sign. I can tell you in years past, uh, those of us who've had the honor of serving as secretary of transportation, We've enjoyed significant bipartisan support. I was uh, just with Sam Skinner, uh, a secretary during the Bush administration, Bush 1, Bush 41, I'll say it that way, uh, and um, gave us a wonderful piece of legislation that was bipartisan. We came in shortly after that, took advantage of that gift uh, during reauthorization, added additional resources. And really, it's that piece of legislation that's governed transportation policy for about 30 years. We now have a need to build on that and to go beyond that. And that's why this current opportunity is so critical. That was former U.S. Transportation Secretary and former Administrator of the Federal Highway Administration, Rodney Slater. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, as Congress tries to figure out passage of an infrastructure plan, the world is working on figuring out how we work in a post-pandemic world. We get some thoughts from the Chief People Officer at Waste Management. This is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Recently, I moderated a Bloomberg panel on how we work, how leaders are leading and organizing for the future to make sure companies and their teams have what they need. Tim, listen, how many times do we have this conversation? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big question is, what does it look like? And nobody really knows the answer, nope. I think. It's a big experiment that's playing out. Right, exactly, in real time. All of this, too, is impacting employer relationships with their own employees, with their clients, with their customers, their business strategies, and their tools for attracting new talent. Well, one participant on your panel, Tomla Oates-Forney, Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer for Waste Management, was kind enough to stop by our daily show to continue the conversation and how she sees work life post-pandemic. We recently launched this new program known as Your Tomorrow, where we're providing debt-free educational benefits for our employees. And beginning in January 2022, it's going to be a benefit that's not only eligible for employees, but their dependents as well, meaning their spouses and their children. And we think this is a creative and innovative and competitive way to, one, attract people to waste management, but not only attract them, but retain them. Tell so us, this is, a, this, this is a big deal. Why did you do it? And, and can anybody access this and anybody's family access this? So why did we do it? One, because there are a couple of things. One, our employees were asking about educational reimbursement benefit in its traditional sense. So it's something that our employees were interested in. But when we looked at the old model, it was more of a reimbursement. So the burden was on the employee to find the school and university, and they would have to come out of pocket up front, and the company would pay for that. So we were looking at options for an educational benefit, and we discovered Guild Education, which has been a phenomenal partner for us. And with Guild Education, every employee that's a full-time employee at Waste Management is eligible for the benefit so long as they've completed 90 days 90 days of pre-employment. They have to go through a probationary period. But on their 91st day, this is yet another benefit that we offer. And through Guild, once they apply for the benefit, they get an education coach, right? And they will help them determine what opportunities are best aligned with their interest and also their career aspiration that's aligned with us at Waste Management. So once they come on, they are eligible for the benefit, and the next year their family members will be eligible for the benefit. And we looked at this for a couple different reasons. One, we know that we're going to have to reskill really fast, mm-hmm. and we needed an educational partner that could help us upskill and reskill the workforce to be aligned with the changes that are happening in the workforce. So we were, I would like to say we were proactive and we were ahead of COVID, but once COVID hit, it really just exacerbated the need, and this was a, a, a a really a good program that we're offering. We launched it in April of this year. Well, and uh, as you said, I mean, we saw this pre-pandemic, you know, employers were beginning to fight for workers. You don't want to lose workers. It costs the company when that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. On average, if we look at the our drivers and technicians, if you will, those are the ones that are most critical to our our survival as a company, if you will. And we were seeing that on average, it's about $23,000 or more a year mm. to when we lose a driver. So we can't afford to do that. And you think about COVID and the demand for drivers and technicians have increased exponentially. You have companies that big box stores that are, you know, 
um, they have more customers and more customers generate more products that they have to deliver and ship from different places. So they have to hire truck drivers. And so the demand mm. has gone up, but the supply is somewhat dwindling. I'm the mother of two Gen Zs and most Gen Zs are not thinking about a career driving a truck. And so what we're trying to do is bring them into our organization. We're looking at them not just for a job, but for the career. And our program is called Your Tomorrow because it talks about how we're planning and supporting you on having a career, not just for today, but for tomorrow. We have to have a way of getting them in. And this is something that is addressing a need that a lot of people have in terms of education. And we're solving that for them. And I think this is going to put us at a, a competitive advantage. Tamla, as, no as you know from the panel, we talked for an hour and I could have talked for more hours, because <laughs> several more, because there's so much to unpack. We just have about 40 seconds left here. Help me with the debate between workers staying at home, workers in the office. There feels like a disconnect. The financial sector really wants all the workers back in the office. But when I talk with the broader corporate America, it feels like it's a bit mixed. How do you think it's going to play out? Again, just got about 35. Five seconds. Sorry. So no, I think it's going to be a hybrid. I think it's going to be all of the above and not one or the other. I was on a panel with another a panelist, and, and what they were saying, I was saying I'm in a talent war, and they said it's not a war any longer. The talent has won the war, which means that they have more say in terms of how they work. And so, to the extent that companies can be flexible and adaptable to meet the needs of the workforce, that's what's going to make them an attractive employer of choice. So I think it's going to be all of the above. Tamla Oates-Forney, Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer for Waste Management. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. From figuring out how we work to figuring out cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. Up next, the Bitcoin dilemma with technology futurist Ian Kahn. We're figuring it out, aren't we? We certainly. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Still clear as mud. <laughs> clear as mud. I like that. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. A great piece on the Bloomberg Terminal this week by our Charlie Wells. He says as Bitcoin turned 12 years old this January, kind of hard to believe, it's certainly been acting like it's in middle school. Is that tween? Is, is, is 12 a tween? <laughs> I think it is a tween. Well, earlier this week, I got a chance to speak with someone deep into the crypto and blockchain scene. Carol, it's technology futurist Ian Kahn. Well, we started the conversation talking about the promise of blockchain. What is the future going to look like? Well, blockchain, I, I think, is the most uh, confused technology. But really, it's for me, what blockchain significa- signifies is peace of mind. That's how I equate that technology to a result, peace of mind, because it takes care of trust issues. It takes care of hacking. It takes care of data protection. It takes care of a lot of things that traditionally we have been unable to do with databases and computer technologies that we've had. And that's what blockchain does in a very complicated way. Yes, it's being defined as a ledger in the sky and it's a, 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 an immutable ledger of records. But, but hey, I, I love the simplified definition, which is peace of mind technology, something that creates trust and enables trust. Give me a more tangible example than that, something that you think has been improved by blockchain technology or, or will, near, will very soon be improved by the blockchain. Of course, uh, there's many, many different use cases of blockchain. I love the ones that um, uh, that are happening in the food industry. 
uh, Australian beef exports are about uh, the fake Australian beef exports, counterfeit ex- ex- Australian beef mm. exports are about $2 billion uh, industry. And uh, th- these foods, we don't know what their origin is, but they're stamped as Australian beef. Uh, there's a company, uh, I believe, uh, Beef Chain, that's trying to solve this problem by certifying beef that originates from Australia. It's stamped at the beginning of the process of export and you can scan the package at the grocery store and, and, and see the whole journey that this packet of beef has taken. There are examples such as Walmart is doing something with, uh, with produce tracking uh, and uh, lettuce tracking, and it's got uses when you're tracking the spread of uh, diseases like uh, salmonella or any other contamination of food. Uh, there's examples from the logistics industry where transportation of certain types of uh, equipment or goods or vaccines, as an example, has to be done under controlled temperature, under controlled conditions. And in a traditional industry, traditional refrigeration industry, if the power goes out on one of these units, it's kind of hard to figure out what has happened. But with blockchain-enabled container ships that are temperature controlled, you can verify that information really quick and figure out that there's something on wrong. The reason why we're able to do this is because because you can't manipulate a blockchain database. You're unable to uh, insert records in it or or modify it in any way that is not authorized. So once, let's use this beef example from Australia that you talked about. So once it's been been and I don't want to say stamped on the blockchain, but how how is how is it associated with the blockchain? Like, what is the physical thing that becomes a part of this beef on the package that, that puts it on the blockchain? So blockchain is essentially a database, and everyday people, you, me, the beef industry, the, the farmer, are never going to touch blockchain as such, right. but it powers the underlying system on which... But it needs uh, some sort of barcode. So it needs a, something that associates it yeah. with the blockchain, right? Correct, correct. And you can use RFID or barcode. Okay. I'll give you an example. So at the beginning of the farm, you can have, let's say, cattle that are at this farm and they're taken to the harvesting site Right there at that site, you have a barcode that's generated associated with a certain animal that tags that carcass through its journey as it's, uh, as it's you know, processed and packaged. That barcode signifies the start of that journey. We were talking all about applications for blockchain that were what I would consider not non-financial. You didn't mention cryptocurrency once, so I want to dive into that right now. Why why didn't you mention cryptocurrency as one of the top applications for blockchain technology? Because I think that's where a lot of people associate it with. Absolutely. I think cryptocurrency is one important side of blockchain, but not the most important side. And that's, that's uh, my opinion. Uh, it, and it's because cryptocurrencies are in a very initial development phase right now. Yes, Bitcoin has been out there for the last 10, 12 years, but it's ways ahead until the financial systems globally accept cryptocurrencies, if they do, uh, as a stable form of payment or, or asset class. But that's happening very, very slowly. The other applications of blockchain, in fact, are proceeding really much rapidly, and the applications are tremendous from insurance industry to logistics to food mm. to retail, education, uh, music rights, intellectual property. There's a limitless number of applications. Crypto is just one of them. When do we get to a point where 
people like me don't ask you questions about applications for blockchain technology. That is where it's something that is so present in our lives, if ever, that we'll all know what it does. Yep. I think it'll be uh, still some time, and it might happen in a in different waves across the world. It may happen in certain regions or countries that are faster adopting digital money or cryptocurrencies, and it might take decades in some other parts of, of the world. Uh, and it all depends on adoption. It all depends on how progressive financial systems and governments in those countries are. We're seeing some, uh, some countries adopt Bitcoin as a form of currency. El Salvador just did that some time ago, although, yes, a very small nation economically, but, but that push has started to happen. Will that happen in the United States or China or one of the world's largest economies? It's, it's a big, big change, and I don't believe it will happen just in a few days. Do you think it will happen with Bitcoin? That will be the cryptocurrency? Or do you think, you know, one thing that I hear from a lot of experts and in, in, in people in the space is they've said, okay, well, you know, the blockchain technology is like the underlying technology that the, the internet was in the AOL days. And, and AOL, though, is, is like the cryptocurrency of, 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 of Bitcoin. So the technology is there, but that's a very early technology. And what you're going to see built on it will significantly surpass what's available right now. I, I think Bitcoin is, um, it, it has the hype associated with it because it was the first cryptocurrency mm -hmm. that was out there. It, is, it has a very limited number of cryptocurrencies, bitcoins, that will ever be generated, 21 million. And so it's got a few of those factors associated with it. Uh, in my personal opinion, it still has challenges. It still uh, has to overcome those challenges. And some newer cryptocurrencies are way far ahead, way faster, uh, and, and have got much more utility than just bitcoin. Uh, but it's, it's, it's one of the popular ones, right, because it was the first uh, to market. And right now is also a time of hype for cryptocurrencies. And we've seen that, uh, you know, when, when certain people are tweeting about Bitcoin, the prices are going up. When they're right. tweeting well, about Well, certain Bitcoin, people, Elon Musk. Tanking. Yes, yeah, yeah, Elon Musk for specifically. Yeah. Specifically. So it's a very hype-driven um, uh, era where consumers are taken by what uh, popular figures in the tech industry are doing, and which is not right. Which is, which is a challenge with Bitcoin, that it, it's, its own fundamentals are better than that, and it doesn't deserve to be taken up and down like that. So that's, that's my opinion on that. Ian, do you own any cryptocurrencies? Oh, I do, and it's a very infinitesimally small amount. I have deliberately done that to stay away from any kind of, uh, of you know, question that I might, it may arise. I, I own next to zero cryptocurrencies. Are there certain cryptocurrencies, though, that you are more bullish on than, than others? Uh, in the short term, I think, of course, Bitcoin stays uh, the most popular one. Um, I like Hedera Hashgraph, uh, and uh, I like Ripple a little bit. Mm. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, push anybody to buy them or not buy them. Do your due diligence, because there are so many factors that are driving these cryptocurrencies. Some are fast. Some have a limited quantity. Some have an underlying technology. Um, and I interviewed somebody on my documentary, The Bitcoin Dilemma. It's uh, Dr. Lehman Beard who invented Hedera Hashgraph. And it's, uh, it's a cryptocurrency that's much faster than Bitcoin. And it's got some really good uh, things happening with it. But please do your due diligence, right? And don't go with hype. Uh, do your due diligence. 
Hey, Ian, um, when you think about the, the future uses of, of, of cryptocurrency, I, I wonder if you do see, you know, like a, a, a country like China actually going through and, and building its own digital currency and, and what that means. I think China is doing something very interesting, and we know they've gone crackdown uh, significantly on cryptocurrency mining, which means they are not entertaining cryptocurrency mining in China. Great. Now, what do what will they do? There's a couple of things they could be doing. They could either be creating their own cryptocurrency and starting to plan the next few years and decades and how that would work, uh, and also uh, they could be looking at uh, the digitization of the of their own currency, the yuan. That's technology futurist and documentarian Ian Kahn. I want to be a futurist. I, how do you become one? I don't know. I'm working on that. You when just got to think more about the future, <laughs> I think. I'm trying. I'm trying. All right. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevet. Coming up in our next hour, the $1 trillion market cap club recently got a new member. We take a look at Facebook's culture of growth at any cost. And Amazon is currently well over a $1 trillion market cap. Founder Jeff Bezos got the company there. Now Amazon's new CEO is tasked with cultivating a new company culture, how Andy Jassy can improve on his predecessor's record with employees. Plus, private jets are all the rage and a subscription-based food delivery service. Is it evolving with the times? Do you have private jets or are you using the subscription-based? Yeah, so I'm much more into the subscription <laughs> food delivery service than I am into the private jets. We service. gotta work on that. Yeah, we do. We gotta become a better futurist. <laughs> exactly. All right, that's all I had in the next hour of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including Facebook recently hitting that $1 trillion in market cap. Wall Street got it there. So, too, did the company's grow-at-any-cost culture. We're going to get that Business Week story in just a moment. We're also talking about another company that's well over the $1 trillion market cap mark. That is Amazon, of course, and how its new CEO is tasked with upgrading the company's culture. Plus, a subscription-based online meal plan service. We're going to hear from Meal Pals co-founder and CEO on how they are doing food delivery differently. First up, let's get to the latest mega metric achieved by Facebook. Hitting that $1 trillion market capitalization the week before last, Facebook did it quickly compared with the big tech and fan companies that did the same. And Tim, they did it with a grow-at-any-cost culture. We got more from Sarah Fryer, Bloomberg News Big Tech team leader. She's also the author of the fantastic book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. Check it out. The way that Zuckerberg has chosen to run the company, the grow-at-all-cost strategy, the fact that he's he's laser-focused on incrementally adding users, adding the time they spend, adding revenue, and has kind of blocked out a lot of this, a lot of this criticism and considered it more of a public relations issue. That's really frustrating for the public. But if you're Facebook, that's exactly what the market wants you to do, as evidenced by this one trillion market valuation. And so why would Facebook have any incentive to change from here? I, I really think that this is the lesson of of this week. The, the trillion dollar valuation came after a judge dismissed the FTC lawsuit on Facebook's monopoly power. So really, this is a celebration of the fact that Facebook can just keep 
growing and and that growth as a priority is what investors want to see. I mean, Sarah, every few years there seems to be some sort of speed bump with Facebook. And, and I think there's a lot of conversation, okay, is this the, the beginning of the end of Facebook or some sort of derailing of, of Facebook's massive success, whether it was that FTC lawsuit that you just mentioned, maybe the Cambridge Analytica data scandal a few years ago, a few years before that, the rise of Snap and Snapchat, for example. Um, how does Facebook continue to keep moving forward and growing bigger? Well, if you think about it, most of those scandals, most of those revelations about the company have not hit its bottom line. Facebook is still adding users. They're still able to expand um, their audience, the amount of time they spend on the platform. They're able to move into new areas um, with the acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. They were able to add uh, young people, people outside the U.S., and so this is this is a company that you know they're not going to be slowed down by a data scandal. They're not going to be slowed down by regulatory scrutiny unless something comes and hits them where it hurts. And I think that the the long legal battle with with the FTC or with Congress or whatever it may whatever the case may be, um, Facebook's still doing its daily job while all those things are happening, and investors do not seem that concerned about this, the microscope that's been on the company over the last few years because it doesn't hit the bottom line. Sarah, you know this because I've talked with you before. I love this line in your story. Zuckerberg runs his company like an emperor paranoid about obsolescence. So how does that translate in terms of the internal culture? It's got to be tough and it's got to be all about growth. As much as Facebook says, you know, our top priority is your privacy or user safety or all the all the statements they've come out with in the past few years trying to burnish their image. The truth of the matter is if you are a Facebook employee, your bonus, your promotion hinges on getting more people to use your product and getting more people to, to click on whatever you've created. And if you can do that, if you can add to the to the number of minutes that people spend on Facebook, the number of um, posts they create, the data that goes into that advertising machine, that's what they want. That's what they reward. Those are the people that ascend the ranks of mm -hmm. Facebook. Mm -hmm. And if you are somebody who who raises your hand and says, wait, I have an idea that will help, um, you know, avoid Russian election interference or um, maybe we could we we have some risks in these products we need to clean up before we ship it. Facebook says, well, let's ship it first and figure that out later. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any public uproar over about that yet. And so why would we do anything to hinder our growth? Hey, Sarah, where does Lena Khan come into this? She's the new chair of the FTC and people who antitrust circles in previous years knew about her because she really changed the way a traditional definition of, of antitrust. And look, uh, she's been very critical of big tech, uh, Amazon most prominently, and, and uh, including Facebook as well. Well, Lena Khan comes at it differently than her predecessors because historically we thought of monopoly as a big company corners the market in something, is able to charge predatory prices and uh, drive out other people because they have just this hold on it. That's not how these big tech businesses work. Uh, Lena Khan's most famous paper was about Amazon, but the same can be said for Facebook. You start in one market and then you just expand and expand into adjacent businesses, try to grow those businesses and try to create a platform on which other businesses are created. Um, so for Amazon, that's their marketplace, that's AWS. 
for Facebook, it, you know, you think about all the, the small businesses that are running their entire livelihoods on virtual stores after being closed during the pandemic. You think about the creators on Instagram that are reliant on Facebook, the media companies that use Facebook for audience development. There are all sorts of businesses that, um, that look to Facebook as their way to reach their customers. That's Sarah Fryer, Bloomberg News Big Tech Team Leader, also author of No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. I do wonder about what's the next chapter for Facebook, especially as it does feel like there's picked up momentum when it comes to the regulatory environment. Yeah, there is. And I think from a consumer perspective, I mean, even an investor perspective, it's mm-hmm. Instagram that gets all of the attention right now. Totally. But remember, Facebook owns WhatsApp, and there's still lots of questions about monetization there. And then Oculus, VR. How is Facebook thinking about VR? Yeah, a lot of questions out there. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, the founder and president of Paravion, which works with the buyers and sellers of business jets. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. People haven't just been getting back on planes. They, Tim, have also been buying them. For more on what's going on when it comes to private air travel, we checked in with Janine Iannarelli, founder and president of Par Avion, which represents international buyers and sellers of pre-owned business jets. Wow, what a difference not even a year makes, but really the activity level ratcheted up. I would say mid-fourth quarter and has not let up. It was absolutely unprecedented and continues to be so. Specifically what? And who's doing what? Well, private individuals. I would say that the bulk of the buyers for business and private aircraft today are still individuals, entrepreneurs. Uh, The driver last year was really COVID. Mm -hmm. That was uh, a motivation for an individual to create what we refer to as a health corridor. How do I get from point A to point B relatively safely, and how do I control my environment? Well, that's relatively easily done through private jet travel. Uh, That continued into the fourth quarter, but I would say the drivers became a little bit different towards the end of the fourth quarter. Some of that was change in administration. That's always something that a little bit rocks the aircraft sales marketplace. Mm -hmm. But after that, it became an appetite for travel. I mean, the impact comes from the decline in airline service, Uh, the cutting of routes, the cancellations that you're now seeing, I think people are thinking they made a wise bet when they bought their own airplane. Will that continue, though, as the airline industry increasingly ramps up? I mean, we know some of the predicaments. We've heard it from some of the carriers. Not enough pilots who need to get back into the simulator and get their hours back up. I mean, obviously, there's an adjustment in the supply chain of everything uh, as the economy, which was shut down completely and is reopening. Do you anticipate that's going to have an impact on what you will see in terms of activity? Oh, absolutely. And this is not a problem that is easily solved. I mean, just because demand is back, the airlines can't go simply flip a switch and put back online all the aircraft that they retired, or I should say placed into preservation at the height of the pandemic, and the number of crew members that they furloughed. This is going to be a multi-year requirement for them in order to return to pre-pandemic levels. You talked about individuals and entrepreneurs buying. Is this U.S., international? Give me an idea of the demographics. Break it down as much as you can. Bloomberg, we love to know specifics. (laughs) So 
the bulk of the activity in the resale marketplace for business aircraft has always been North America, mm-hmm. uh, even more so today. I think at this particular moment, North America is accounting for about 75% of the global aircraft sales. Part of what we're seeing is uh, a, a slow return to the market by those countries that are now opening back up. And the first ramp up you'll see is in four higher. By that I mean those who are chartering aircraft or buying into the fractional share or club programs. Uh, it will take a global reopening before we see a real resurgence in aircraft sales activity outside of the continental United States. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, the appetite is extremely strong here, and uh, demand is outstripping supply. And that can also create dislocations for you. Do you anticipate a sales slowdown because there isn't there the supply out there? Uh, good observation. It has become the concern of people in the trade today is that how good can this year be if, in fact, we can't get our hands on airplanes? Well, I think it's relative. It's sort of cyclical, even among aircraft brokers. You know, one particular quarter, you're extraordinarily busy, and then it's quiet. And I think the same will continue. Um, hard to say. New aircraft are a challenge to get your hands on. In fact, mm-hmm. you're probably looking at it several years out before you can take delivery, even if you place an order at this time. So really the focus is on the pre-owned aircraft marketplace. All right, and pre-owned, this isn't like, you know, the used car, you kick the tires, you get a great deal. I mean, give us an idea. What's a a typical pre-owned aircraft? What do you get? What's the maker? What does it cost? Well, it depends on what one is after, but let's talk about something in the mid-size, super mid-size category, which I happen to be very well-versed in at the moment, because I'm offering two for sale. Mm -hmm. So I have an aircraft that is um, 17 years old and another one that is at 22 years old. They are um, coast-to-coast capability. They're actually intercontinental capability, but it'll require a stop, for example, if you're going off the East Coast into Europe. Uh, They are state-of-the-art. They are uh, mid-range on their inspection cycles. This is all important considerations because it points towards the actual cost of the aircraft. You were talking about two planes that you've got for sale. One's, I think, 17 years old. One's 22 years old. Continue, because I think our audience wants to know, what are you selling? These aircraft fall into that mid-size category. They're Mm -hmm. known as Falcon 50 EXs. And, you know, even though when you hear the words 17 years and 22 years, that's really not that old. Uh, We look or we focus more on what is the overall total time and the overall care of the aircraft. And private jets, as you can imagine, are, um, let's say, babied a bit more than your commercial airliners. They just don't work as hard as a commercial airliner aircraft does. So consequently, we're not faced with some of the same maintenance issues uh, on a very rapid reoccurring basis. It's going to fall between four and four and a half million. And that certainly represents an appreciation from what those aircraft might have been worth fourth quarter of 2020. You know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about, and you said that part of the reason maybe people are tapping into the private jet market a little bit more, is also the slow recovery uh, in the commercial airline space. And some of what's holding back commercial airlines is access to workers. How about in your world? Because you can buy a private plane, but if you don't have a great private pilot (laughs) who can fly it or engineers to take care of it, uh, it's not going to do you any good. Very good point. I mean, the Supply of qualified personnel 
is going to impact the aviation industry across the spectrum. I would say for the moment that while flight departments, established flight departments are struggling and thinking about the next generation, they're well established enough at this point in time that they can manage the uplift they currently are responsible for. But the future is very, very uncertain. There are entities, uh, some of the fractional shares, the club memberships, they're offering bonuses, signing bonuses. Mm. Uh, Charter operators are taking on uh, pilots, junior pilots, let's call it, starting out with far fewer accumulated hours than they might have five years ago. But all of that is in an effort to feed the pipeline, to train them, to uh, indoctrinate them into the industry, and to hopefully retain them. Because there is some jumping between the private aviation industry and the airline industry, uh, back and forth. Uh, some some pilots would prefer a schedule, and when you fly the airlines, at least you have a set schedule. But private aircraft is more of a as-needed basis. I mean, that's the whole purpose of having that aircraft. It is, for some people, simply a luxury, but for others, it is an absolute business tool. That's Janine Yanarelli, founder and president of Par Avion. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, what Amazon's new CEO can do to change that company's culture. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Well, Andy Jassy started his new job this week as chief executive officer at Amazon, replacing billionaire Jeff Bezos as the head of the e-commerce giant. Well, Carol, for more on what we can expect from Jassy and really how he can improve company culture, especially among those hundreds of thousands of warehouse workers, I spoke with Heather Younger, founder of Employee Fanatics. This is a firm that focuses on how to improve the employee experience. Well, I think no matter what, he, you need to be really clear up front what type of leader he's going to be. Uh, and, and how he might be different from Bezos, of course. And even though he's been there, you know, setting his mark, deciding what kind of leader he wants to be and how he's going to show up for all of those hundreds of thousands of people who are looking to him for leadership. That's that's one thing. I think, secondly, um, he's going to need to take some real clear steps to listen to those people because I'm not sure anybody has been listening and <laughs> understanding what their needs are, what their complaints might be, and just to be committed to doing the right thing as it relates to them. You mentioned listening, and it struck me because I just finished uh, our colleague Brad Stone's new book about Amazon, and I was struck with many parts of it, but he, he shares this story from a little over a year ago, April of 2020, when the United States is in the midst of this pandemic, Amazon is hiring so many new people. Uh, these are essential workers, the service quickly becoming essential to people who are in lockdown and need to get groceries and supplies. And Jeff Bezos made a surprise visit to one of Amazon's warehouses. But it was the first time that he had visited one of those fulfillment centers in years. Yeah. And I think that's a really big mistake. I'm hoping that Jesse says, you know what, I'm going to be the listening leader. I'm going to be going around and I'm going to do a listening tour, uh, go to as many centers as I can, even if it's virtual or in person, but in person is probably better. So you can really see how people are living in the, in the way in which they have to work every day and trying to, trying to get their work done. So yeah, I hope that would be his first step is listening tours, just going around. Um, you know, the listening is, it's, it's no, it'll go a huge way for those people because they hadn't been listened to. They, people know when they've been heard. They know when they're cared for by the leaders who they look to for guidance. 
And that would build a level of trust that he needs right off the bat, particularly with any new initiatives he's trying to get you know, put through. How does he do this at scale, though? Because this is something that Amazon is, is a unique beast, right? It has fulfillment centers all over the world. It's at hundreds of thousands of employees. How does Jassy do this in a way that makes it look like he's going on, uh, he's going beyond just doing it for show. In the end, he doesn't have to do it all by himself. He can have the whole C-suite. He can have outside consulting firms like my employee fanatics, right, come in and help with some of the listening sessions. In the end, it's uh, when they know that they are being heard and that there's an intent to act on at least some of what it is they're saying, and they see the results, and then you feed them back through action, telling them what it is you're doing for them, they know they've been heard. It makes it just makes a huge difference. It validates it. It makes them feel that the work that they're doing is meaningful and they feel like there's more than just the day to day, but that there's it's leading to some bigger mission for the world. Okay, so apart from the listening tour, what else can Jassy do, especially when it comes to working with other executives to help build up that team? You know, right off the bat, if he's able to establish with his leadership team that that things are going to change, that it is going to be about making sure that they're driving a more positive culture and that every one of those people on the leadership team has to take responsibility so he's not in it all by himself. That'll be super clear. Making sure that maybe he does put someone in charge that really is super focused on be, having the pulse for employees, suggesting uh, really good avenues for cultural improvements, um, and making sure that they're always keeping those at the front line of the customer experience right at the front of all their cultural improvements so that they're, you know, it's not so um, just coming from top down, but maybe he creates culture teams all throughout the organization and they report into this new person, but making sure that there's someone that has the pulse. I think the other thing through all of this kind of crazy time is making sure that um, that he and his team and the, and the team members can be adaptable, less fearful, and they'll be less fearful, more adaptable when they're aware of changes that are coming down the pike, mm-hmm. so being super open and communicative about this. What are the takeaways that we can learn from a transition like uh, Bezos and Jassy's that, that we can all apply to our own corporate lives? I think uh, this idea of reinvention is a big one, so mm. reinventing you know, yourself as a leader and then how do you, and then if your over an organization is as beastly as Amazon, how do you kind of reinvent? But don't do it in a silo and don't just do it at the leadership level. How, do you, how are you more inclusive in your decision making? Um, I think that's going to be the biggest thing for leaders coming forward. And, and I'm not just talking from, you know, the marginalized group side. I'm just talking about generally how are we more inclusive in the decision making process so that people feel bought into things. And when we're talking about these people that are not coming back, it's probably because leaders aren't getting a clue. They don't mm. understand what it is their people needed from the beginning. They needed to be listening and they needed to be more inclusive. In 30 seconds, Heather, we, uh, you know, we know on Wall Street, uh, leaders of, of publicly traded companies are judged by returns. How are you going to judge, Jesse? You know, I, I'm, I hate to say it, but those, those news uh, articles, the things that you see, the coverage that's happening with employees and yeah. the sour taste that's leaving in their mouth, I think I'm going to judge him by... How, how that goes down and if it's going to be if he's going to be able to turn the tide of the negative culture and bad press that they're getting what is he going to do to set his mark to create a more positive culture that's heather younger founder of employee fanatics you're listening to bloomberg business week coming up how meal pal is putting their own spin on online food delivery this is bloomberg You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
Yes, there is a buffet of food delivery apps and services. See what I did there? I do. Okay, well, we know that. There's tons of options. There's Uber Eats, there's Grubhub, there's DoorDash, there's Yelp, there's Postmates. I know I'm leaving some out. So when one advertises a free dinner delivery, we definitely wanted to know more. Okay, so this is why we checked in with MealPal co-founder and CEO Mary Biggins, who, by the way, she's also a co-founder of ClassPass as well. MealPal started as a subscription-based meal plan restaurant service back in 2016, where users picked up their food. I used you used this, it, right? Oh, I used it a ton, Carol, uh, yeah. before the pandemic. This was the way I got lunch. All right. I love that. Well, the company now also offering to deliver it. We got a deep dive into how it all works and where it's all going. MealPal traditionally has been a meal pickup service, and we really focused on lunch and helping consumers save time and money when you're you know, running out of the office to pick up a lunch. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we helped consumers reserve over 40 million meals at restaurants like Sweet Green, Chipotle, Shake Shack, Chick-fil-A, um, you know, kind of all of the casual restaurants that people know and are really familiar with. Um, and just recently, we've added on a delivery service. We certainly had a, a lot of interest in that as people transitioned to working from home and really have launched a bit of a different delivery service in that it's really geared at helping consumers save money, but making it really efficient and a good offering for the restaurant's business model as well. So tell us how it works. And I feel like to some extent, it's like just-in-time inventory for the restaurants that they can really plan and know exactly how many people are going to buy meals. But walk it through. If I am a member, tell me what I'm paying and what I'm getting for the service. Yeah, so as a member, you're getting lunch for as little or, or dinner for as little as about $6 per meal, depending on what you book. So with MealPal, as a consumer, you'll always save at least 20%. Um, you're buying sort of a, a package of meals. And when you log into the website, you'll see that each restaurant on our platform is offering just one menu option per day. So you might choose the kale salad at Green or the steak burrito bowl at Chipotle. The menu is going to rotate on a daily basis, so you'll always have hundreds of choices, actually thousands of choices on a daily basis. But by having it all focused on one meal per restaurant, we're giving the restaurant really valuable efficiency and really valuable operational capacity. Um, you know, the restaurant is able to have a couple of employees make just the meal pal meals, and they're making a lot of the same meals very quickly as opposed to making a lot of individual orders. And so especially right now, as restaurants are facing pretty significant staffing challenges and trying to rehire, restaurants are really getting value out of MealPal because they're able to make their meals more efficiently. And I'm curious, so if I'm a member, what do I pay for? the? Or there's different plans, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. We have a couple of different plans. Okay. So our most common plan is a 12-meal plan, and that's about $85 per month. Um, we also have a 16-meal plan that's $139. And actually, we have a trial that's about $15. We'll let you try out three meals and get free delivery on those meals as well so you can really see how the service works and, and make sure it's a good fit for you. And you have to order by what time? By a certain time in the morning? Yeah, so for our lunch product, you can actually order in real time now. So we've mm. built out a data algorithm. We can predict where people will order from and still send orders to the restaurant in advance. So you can order all the way really through lunchtime. And then for dinner, you still have to order in advance. So for dinner, you just have to order by 4 o'clock the day of. That is really interesting. So talk to me about the number of users. Because you've been doing this, was it 2016 that you launched this? Um, right. Tell me, that's what, five, four or five years yeah. that you've yeah, been doing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, most of our business, you know, pre-COVID, we were really lunch-focused. And so we did over 40 million reservations for lunch. We wow. paid restaurants over $250 million and and truly incremental revenue, so really valuable revenue, really different than a delivery service provider because 
we're not taking a fee on each order that we send to the restaurant. We're instead sending the restaurant a bulk order. So we can say to uh, Sweetgreen, we want to send you 100 orders for the same item, and they can price out what that 100 orders would be, and we can then pass some of those savings along to the consumer. So really valuable partner to restaurants, I think, um, that's sort of a core part of our DNA. We have to have a product that's beneficial to restaurants and that's helpful for restaurants and building good businesses. And then at the same time, we want to make sure we're saving consumers money and helping them have efficient meals. So Mary, I'm fascinated by what you are doing because it feels like you're stripping it down and kind of simplifying the process but and also reducing the cost uh, and helping restaurants as well as users in the process. Having said that, how many users do you have? What's the kind of growth that you're seeing? Yeah, so I can't share user numbers, but I can tell you on a daily basis, there are tens of thousands of people who are using our product in cities really around the world. So we're available in, in 20 markets from New York to San Francisco, even internationally in London, Singapore, uh, wow. Australia. Um, and I think really the, the name of the game for us is all about efficiency, right? We mm-hmm. want to give our users a really efficient way to get lunch or dinner, whether they want to pick it up or whether they want to have it delivered. We want them saving money and saving time. And we're saving uh, the restaurants, creating efficiency for them as well, which is really different than what others in the space have done in the past. Well, let me just push you a little bit. I understand you can't share numbers, but how sticky is it? I mean, if someone, when someone signs up for a meal plan, or do they have to commit to six months, a year, one month? How does that work? Yeah, so we do 30-day cycles. So it's okay. a monthly commitment. You know, people don't have to renew after that. The, the overwhelming majority of people do renew after one cycle. So, you know, similar to ClassPass and many other subscription models, we found that to be a really good way to build a business and, and really to have some predictability for our restaurant partners as well. So, so, you're, so you're not spending a ton of money on marketing to kind of keep people in or do you? Like what's your biggest cost of mm-hmm. operation? Yeah, I mean, our biggest cost is the cost of the team and our engineers and the people who are building the product. Um, you know, we don't spend a ton of money on marketing. The majority of people who are signing up for MealPal have mm-hmm. heard about it from a friend or a coworker. Um, you know, I think especially when people were in offices, this is the type of thing that would catch on in one office. And you'd have, you know, entire floors of people at uh, Citibank or J.P. Morgan or Credit Suisse all using MealPal to get lunch together and kind of facilitating that that sort of social time of their day for them. Um, do you see, I mean, I'm thinking about the established players that have been out there. You know, all of us, if we go to, I'm looking at my phone, if I go to my food apps, you know, whether it's Grubhub, whether it's DoorDash, whether it's, um, I've got Yelp, I've got Open Table, yeah. I've got Uber Eats. I mean, do you see yourself as a competitor to them or how do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, our model is really different, right? If yeah. you wanted to order a burrito bowl from Chipotle right now and have it delivered to you right now, you're going to be paying upwards of $20 on most of those apps. Now, the burrito bowl might cost only 10 to $12, but when you kind of layer in all of the fees, you're going to be paying quite a bit for that sort of on-demand experience. Um, with MealPal, now with our delivery product or with Pickup, you're going to be getting that exact same meal for you know 8 or $9. So, I think, you know, MealPal is really well-suited to people who are consistently ordering restaurant food and who can kind of say, like, yeah, I do order takeout or I do want to do delivery six times a month, ten times a month, whatever it might be. This is going to be a much more efficient way to do that. Um, It's interesting, too. uh, I mean, do you have any indications? You said that most people who sign up for a month, they stay with you and they stay with you for months, for the year, for years? Yeah, we've got people who have been with us for several, several years. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, we've got people who have literally saved uh, over $10,000 using MealPal at this point. If you look at 
all of the meals they reserved compared to, you know, the cost it would have been if they were buying them at retail. Well, I'm going to tell you in my household too, it's just because of the pandemic, there was a lot of food ordering going on and (laughs) the additional fees. And all of a sudden you look at it and you're right. You order a salad that maybe doesn't cost that much, but once you throw on all the fees, you're like, I just spent 30 bucks for a salad. Uh, Yeah. There's some guilt there. (laughs) There's a lot of guilt. Um, what about your demographics of your users? Is it a younger crowd? Is it across the age spectrum? Or give what can you share with us about the demos of who's using your service? Yeah, so pre-COVID, it definitely skewed a bit younger. It was okay. people who were um, sort of, you know, they're 22 to 35 working in offices and looking to save money on lunch and, and really wanting to, to get lunch in the restaurant on a daily basis. Um, of course, stuff shifted with COVID. So we started to have more families using the product. We started to expand our product offering to be available in suburbs as well. So kind of outside of that that core urban area where we started. Um, You know, I think we really do focus on areas where there's a good amount of density. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sending a high number of orders to our restaurants is really key. You know, if we can send Chipotle 100 orders all for the same item, it's going to be really efficient for them to make those meals. And so we want to make sure any market that we're in or any restaurants that we're partnering with we can really send them meaningful volume so it's beneficial to their operations. Mary, how do you pick and choose partners or do you pick and choose or are you pretty open to whoever wants to be on the platform? Yeah, so we capture ratings for every meal served on the platform. You know, if, if we find that a restaurant doesn't have ratings that are sort of in line with where we think they should be, we'll be talking to that restaurant and kind of making a determination of whether they should stay or not. I think the unique thing, though, about food is that a meal that I give five stars, you might, you might hate and give one star and vice versa. And so right. a key part of our product is our recommendation engine. So about 50% of the reservations we get on a daily basis are people choosing the meal that we've recommended for them. We recommend three meals for a user on a daily basis based on what they've reserved and what they've rated in the past. So we really start to understand a user's preferences and, and do a pretty good job of matching them up with the best meal for them on a given day. But we work with a lot of the local restaurants as well. You know, hearing you guys talk about pizza earlier, mm-hmm. I mean, Pizza Loves Emily in New York. They're an amazing partner. They've got I think some of the most creative pizzas in, in New York City or Keste is another great one or Patsy's Pizzeria. I mean, we've got a lot of mom and pop restaurants that are, you know, maybe one or two locations and, you know, really all over the world. We've got over 5,000 different restaurant partners in total. That's MealPal co-founder and CEO Mary Biggins. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's that special double heist issue. You can also see me on a Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT. Also streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg.